Special thanks to CHR Hansen, a leader in fermentation and innovative brewing solutions. CHR Hansen's range of high-quality yeasts includes Smart Bev Near, which crafts flavorful beer entirely without the alcohol. These yeasts even enable fast, climate-friendly, and cost-efficient production. We thank CHR Hansen for their support and commitment to excellence in brewing. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Berkeley Yeast, creators of diacetyl-free yeast strains. Diacetyl-free strains are bioengineered to produce the ALDC enzyme inside the yeast cell to keep diacetyl low during fermentation and after packaging. Diacetyl-free strains create the cleanest flavor profile possible, which makes them the yeast of choice for the most exacting brewer. Go to berkeleyyeast.com to read about how brewers are using diacetyl-free strains to propel their beers to the top of the podium. Grist Analytics captures and trends data across the brewery so you can see issues as they are happening, not several batches later. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and see scheduling predictions from anywhere. Connect Grist with your ERP platform to cover your brewery from production to finance. The analytical team started noticing differences in hop compounds. They were getting the 12 ounce can and the 19.2 ounce can in their rack, and then they're running their normal analysis and some anomalies start showing up in the data. There was head scratching, you know? This week on the show, a case study at New Belgium to understand the impact of can coatings on hop aroma. I'm Brooke Cushion. I am the manufacturing site lead in Asheville for New Belgium Brewing. And I'm Nate Burns. Uh, I am a uh, analytical chemist here at New Belgium in Asheville, North Carolina. Today, we're going to walk through a case study at New Belgium. Before we jump in, talk about what makes this case study different. When you go to ASBC meetings, and uh, oftentimes there are very incredibly excellent presentations on analytical chemistry, sensory, and uh, microbiology. And packaging quality oftentimes is a little, I mean, I would, I can say it's a little bit underrepresented, but um, yeah, it's underrepresented at least um, in that context oftentimes. And so I think that the ASBC is trying to make a little bit more of a effort to make, be intentional about um, including content um, because packaging quality can have such a direct impact on um, beer quality. And so I think the biggest thing about this case study was that there is this really important opportunity for collaboration between uh, folks in our QA lab who 
did analytical chemistry and then and sensory for that matter. Um, and then at the time that uh, we did this presentation, I was the packaging quality scientist and at New Belgium Asheville. And packaging quality is incredibly important. And but there aren't that many opportunities where our worlds overlap in the way that this case study did. So it was really exciting because, you know, if I'm on the floor and we're having issues with cardboard or you know label glue or <laughs> stretch wrap you know that a lot of that most of the time that whole world does not overlap into the world that Nate is a part of and so uh, this case study being about um, can coatings and beer volatiles like that was just a really cool just coming together of two worlds in a way that like probably could happen a lot more often. I think from an analytical perspective, it was a, a great study because not only did we bring in uh, analytical, sensory, and packaging QA, you know, which are two very separate um, sides of the QA lab, um, brought them all together. Uh, all that data was very uh, comparable, which does not always happen. And so my side of the study is more so focused on the comparison of that data and just kind of defining what checks and balances we have in place to pick up this kind of uh, this kind of anomaly. Most case studies begin with a moment where something doesn't quite add up or some question goes unanswered. What's the story here? Yeah, so Nate actually was Nate, were you with us when we did this study necessarily? <laughs> Um, I think I had just started. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know when we want to include this in our um, in our chat, but I definitely want to um, throw out some some kudos to the people who actually ran the study. Um, I'm merely a messenger. Yeah, so um, it was 2019, and you know, at that point, um, 19.2 ounce cans were something that was at least for New Belgium, a pretty new thing. You know, we had 24-ounce cans of Dayblazer um, that were being produced in Fort Collins. Um, and then we had 22-ounce bottles of Imperial. And so when we were putting brands into a larger package format, um, not kegs, you know, a single serving format, um, bottles and 24-ounce cans was what we were working with. Um, and Dayblazer didn't go into a, well, I guess it did go into a 12-ounce can, actually, now that I say that. Um, but we weren't necessarily, there weren't that many instances where we were putting the same liquid into two different formats or there were limited ones. And we weren't seeing this interaction that we saw with cans in bottles. And so at the time, um, in 2019, um, and this actually happened at the Fort Collins lab because we didn't even have a can line in Asheville at this time. Um, so in Fort Collins, the analytical team started noticing differences in hop compounds that were showing up in their analytical analytical data for Imperial. And so um, in instances where we were putting Dayblazer into a 24 ounce can, Dayblazer isn't per, wasn't particularly a hop forward brand. So the can actually said just easygoing ale. That's like lawnmower beer, if you will. Um, and so putting Voodoo Ranger Imperial into a 19.2 ounce can, um, it, it's a little bit of a different animal because um, of just the hop compounds that existed in 
um, that beer and other IPAs that we were just starting to introduce into that space. And so kind of in the first time in New Belgium history, and I guess I could say that and someone will tell me I'm wrong, you know, but in my history in New Belgium, we were taking beer from the same bright beer tanks. And on Monday, they might be going into 12 ounce cans that were going into a 12 pack. And then we're putting that same beer into a 19.2 ounce can um, that's going into a 15 pack that might end up at a concert venue or something of that, that type of a, a venue or a convenience store slot, you know? Um, and so analytical in Fort Collins, they were getting the 12 ounce can and the 19.2 ounce can in their rack, and then they're running their normal analysis and some anomalies start showing up in the data where this is the same bright beer, um, but, but the hop compound results and Nate will be able to dive into that a little bit deeper, but it started looking different. And so there was, there was head scratching, you know, and for me being in Asheville, um, and working with my counterpart in Fort Collins, you know, it was a conversation that we were having around like, well, what could it be? You know, because when you're talking about a difference between a 12 ounce can and a 19.2 ounce can, it becomes pretty easy to point to the packaging materials being playing some role in it, you know. And so, um, yeah, then in 2020, it, our sensory team um, started their study where they did uh, innate, what does the 2AFC stand for again? I'm like blanking on this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just uh, I Googled it right before this. Uh, <laughs> also worth mentioning, I'm not a sensory scientist. Um, <laughs> to alternative uh, force choice. Right. And, and so in this instance, when they did that study, um, you know, I'm a panelist, Nate's a panelist. Uh, so we go into panel every day at 10 a.m. and we aren't sure what we're tasting, but the sensory scientists will slide through two samples side by side. And um, you have to go through a two AFC test where you're tasting the two samples and you have to choose whether or not one has more mercine than one or whether one's more aged than another. Um, and we'll dive into the sensory data. But um, yeah, again, so sensory started to see differences in uh, cold stored two month shelf life data. All right, tell us more about those differences in hop compounds that were observed in 2019. Yeah, so uh, I'm reading off a data sheet, so I'm going to do my best. There's no visual aid with a podcast, but I'm going to do my best to make it uh, into a essay type format. Um, so you could, you could use like you know different accents for each type if you want. <laughs> I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna refrain from that. Uh, <laughs> so, like Brooke was mentioning, um, we started to notice uh, decreased uh, mercine and humulene in our cans versus our bottles. So that was kind of the uh, tip-off point. Is uh, you know we had a bottle out of a certain bright beer tank with a mercine of close to 1800 uh, parts per billion, whereas we had a can uh, from the same exact bright beer tank come in close to 600. So uh, over half, uh, half as much mercine in that um, sample. So that kind of created the uh, head scratching that uh, Brooke was alluding to as to, you know, why is this happening? Is there uh, dilution, you know, if you've worked in a brewery, I'm sure you're aware of all of the uh, possible uh, opportunities for for something like this to occur. Um, so many knobs to pull, etc. 
so as I, well, <laughs> not supposed to say this, but as I mentioned earlier, um, we're very fortunate that we have the instrumentation that we do and the checks and balances that we have in place because that allowed us to uh, look at these uh, fermentations past um, secondary fermentation into maturation and say, okay, the mercine was this um, prior to package. Why did it drop off by, you know, 200%? And, um, and you're talking out of the same bright tank, right? So, I mean, it's even, yeah. if the, even if the fermentation had been an anomaly, it should still theoretically be the same coming out of the, out of the bright tank. Absolutely. Um, so from BBT to package line, um, you only have so many opportunities for, um, you know, this uh, mercine reduction. Um, so we was started... It, only, it wasn't only mercine though, right? Or, or the, or oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm using mercine uh, kind of as a, as a talking point. But yeah, um, mostly mercine and humulene uh, in this study. So... I could just say hop aromas if that if that helps. No, no, terpenes. Good. Yeah. terpenes. Terpenes. Are, yeah. Nate, can you tell us what a uh, mercine and humulene smell like? Um, yeah. So mercine is typically defined as, you know, when you have a hoppy beer, I'd say that's the, the main component. Um, not a sensory scientist, I'm sure they'll tear me apart. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of like your your pine needle, pine tree type aroma that most people associate with uh, hops. Similarly, uh, humulene is uh, kind of in the same vein. It's uh, commonly, you know, cannabis, sage, ginseng, that kind of thing. So, um, kind of collectively, we would call that uh, hop aroma at New Belgium, at least. Um, and we have, you know, various methods set up to kind of quantify that hop aroma. And so this particular study, we used uh, GCMS an analysis, which is uh, pretty common in uh, other lines of work, as well as breweries that have the uh, capacity to do so. And like any interesting case study, the first questions asked often lead to more questions. Let's hear about the thought process and what exactly happened next. Yeah, obviously this part of the process, you know, in really any problem solving exercise or, you know, utilizing the scientific method, you know, defining the problem is really what directs next steps and the um, testing that was to follow. And, you know, if you're not asking like the whole slew of questions and proving things out as you go, then you might be chasing something down for weeks or months that isn't really at all, you know, relevant. So um, in the time where we were asking questions about why we would be seeing differences in 12 ounce cans versus 19.2 ounce cans. And I guess also for that, uh, Analytical also saw differences between like 12 ounce bottles and 19.2 ounce cans. And so there's a whole, what makes those containers different, you know, 19.2 uh, ounce cans ha have a larger headspace. So we were asking questions around, you know, how do TPOs look for 19.2 ounce cans compared to 12 ounce? And when they were comparing data sets, like in general, it looked comparable to a degree that they didn't feel like it was solely being driven by you know, higher headspace oxygen. Um, and so as we're going through and asking these questions, you know, being able to like verify that something is, you know, contributing or not contributing, or it's kind of um, still in an unresolved state. So I would say, yes, there's more headspace in 19.2 ounce cans, but we weren't, 
there wasn't a direct tie to total packaged oxygen to this problem. Um, there's more, or I guess there's a difference in surface area can to beer contact, I believe. I don't exactly know if it's like, I don't even know which one's more, I guess I probably should, but uh, we asked about that. Then we were asking questions around like, well, where do these cans come from? Like, do the 12 ounce cans and the 19.2 ounce cans both come from the same, you know, can manufacturing site, which they didn't, you know? So then we start asking questions around, okay, if they're coming from two different can manufacturing sites, what is different about those two sites? Um, and the question around, you know, we definitely knew that there was a BPA NI liner because even in the code that the manufacturer prints on the can itself, you know, it has date information, what line it's produced out of, off of. Um, but then it also has an asterisk, which tells you that it has a BPA NI coating. Um, and so, you know, when you look at a 12 ounce versus a 19.2 ounce can, you're like, okay, they both have the asterisks. So um, they're coming from different manufacturers, but in our minds at that point, will they both have BPA NI coatings? Um, but we dug a little bit deeper into that question. We didn't just automatically like sign off and say same, you know, BPA and I were like, good. Um, at that point, we do have a pretty open dialogue with our can manufacturer. And so we approached them and said, you know, we're seeing this difference and, um, we know that they're both BPA and I, BPA and I, but is there a possibility that maybe the coating application it's thicker or maybe it's applied too heavy or this or that. And at that point, that's when uh, the can manufacturer kind of came back to us and was able to tell us a little bit more about our coatings than we really, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you ask, you know. And so at that point, we realized that there, and I guess I should specify, when I say can coating, that is the same in, for the use of this talk um can coating and can liner are synonymous they're the same thing got it yeah so um in looking when we realize that there are different not all bpa and i coatings are created equally um essentially so um we sent samples back to the can manufacturer really not knowing what could be different about the coating types at that point and when they shared a report back then at that point they kind of explained one of the samples that you sent is a BPA NI Gen 2 coating. Um, the other two are BPA NI Gen 1 coatings. And those Gen 1 coatings actually come from two different manufacturers. So the three can samples that we sent, they were all different, you know, even though one was Gen 2, the other remaining were Gen 1. But even across the two that were Gen 1, there was differences in the makeup, the chemical makeup of those Gen 1 liners, um, which all of this is like mind blown had no idea <laughs> talk, talk about some of those differences what can you tell, tell us about them so in the differences between and this is also like big disclaimer um i'm not a can coating specialist by any means and but i bet you're um, more of one now than you were before this started <laughs> exactly yeah i i say that about stuff like stretch wrap i'm like i had no idea i was going to become you know a amateur expert, if you will, on stretch wrap and wooden pallets, but here I am, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, as what we learned from our can manufacturers that, uh, and Nate will be able to dive into this a little bit more, but Gen 2 coatings um, tend to have less suppression on the product. And there's different uh, like terms used for this. Flavor scalping is one 
way that it's often, that's a term that's used when talking about flavor suppression, um, where they kind of share that different coatings within the Gen 1 category, because BPNI really kind of is a new concept. Um, when the, and when I say Gen 1, that's like Generation 1. This is kind of the first generation of BPANI coatings that came to be, if you will. So as they were developing that category of coatings, um, they were developed in different ways by different manufacturers of the coating itself, not even the can, just the coating. Um, and so what they found was that within that category, there are different impacts to uh, the product that those cans are then filled with. Um, and so in one instance, one of the Gen 1 liners um, had a higher amount of suppression on the liquid that was within. I did want to mention that um, kind of the initial discovery of this uh, discrepancy in hot volatiles um, came from our control charts, which we have in place. So um, if we dip below a certain set point in any step of the process, uh, we get email alerts and we can pull up our, our charts and, and dig into it uh, further from there. Okay. So you first got a flag that what, that myrcene or something was too low for a particular batch or what? Yeah, that's, that's typically how it would um, happen. So obviously in maturation, everything was fine. Uh, and then our next sample point beyond that, as far as um, hop volatiles go, would be in finished product. So uh, yeah, we would have had a email alert come out to us and say, your mercine is out of spec low, your humulene is out of spec low, um, which then, you know, opens up the, the can of worms per se uh, and sends us, sends us spiraling into all of the potential outcomes and <laughs> how we got there. But you guys... I bet you guys really look forward to those emails. Oh yeah, yeah, they're yeah. they're my best friend. I have them uh, kind of segregated off into their own little email folder. <laughs> the day right. I left the QA, I like sent an email and was like, "Please take me off these emails." <laughs> and my inbox, it's lighter for it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I have two bosses. It's the email alerts and yeast. I think. <laughs> Coming up. It wasn't a 12 ounce versus 19.2 ounce problem anymore. You know, once they were using the same coatings, whether it was a 12 or a 19.2, our results started to line up again. You know, I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, who are here to help you keep it fresh all year with their line of fruit purees. Made from 100% real fruit, fruit purees from BSG can be added during primary or secondary fermentation to bring real fruit flavor to your brew. Plus, because they're aseptically processed, refrigeration is not required. Available in blueberry, mango, and pineapple, fruit purees from BSG are perfect for adding a punch of natural fruit to your beers. Real fruit, 
real fresh all year long. Contact your BSG sales rep or visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to get yours. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit brewingscience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District New England meets at Martha's Exchange January 26th and 27th. The 2024 Ontario Technical Conference is January 31st through the 2nd at the Pillar and Post. District St. Paul Minneapolis meets at Surly February 15th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology Course begins February 22nd. District Great Plains has their annual meeting February 23rd and 24th at Mark One Electric Company in Kansas City. District Northern Cal meets February 25th at Moonlight Brewing in Santa Rosa. District St. Louis meets at Top Golf in Chesterfield February 26th. District St. Louis's March Shop Talk will be at Blue Jay Brewing March 21st. The District St. Louis Spring Quarterly Meeting is April 8th. District St. Louis teams up with the Pink Boots Chapter of St. Louis May 9th at Nine Mile Garden. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 6th. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress. That's August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Getting back to the beer, what exactly did you decide? Did you decide to measure? Did, were you only measuring nurse, nursing and um, humulene here, or did you did you take this beyond that? Uh, no, we took that uh, beyond this. Uh, obviously, when you have a study that you're doing, you want to kind of um, prioritize what is actionable, and you want to prioritize, um, you know, 
you want to be able to corroborate what sensory is saying. So um, we did look at um, bittering compounds as well, uh, humulinones, isoalpha acids, and alpha acids. Um, so luckily, we have a UHPLC at our disposal here. Um, so along with uh, the GCMS analysis for uh, different volatiles, DMS, hop aroma, um, and geraniol, uh, we also ran our IAs method. And for the purpose of the ASBC talk, I kept it pretty um, simple, but really we only saw significant differences in our um, hop aromas for this, for this test. A lot of our um, analysis that we perform on our GCMS is uh, comparable with uh, sensory terms. So myrcene is a sensory term, um, which you know is verbatim what we measure um, on our instrument. So it is um, it kind of falls apart from there, but uh, sensory also has uh, tropical citrus, sherry raisin, papery, uh, and overall age aromas, uh, which we kind of correlated in this study. Uh, tropical aromas can kind of be defined as uh, linalool. Um, geraniol, that kind of thing, whereas um, sherry raisin is more of a sensory perception and uh, can be a, a definer of um, aged beer, oxidized beer. Nate, do we, we don't measure trans 2 nonanol, do we? Mm -mm. Okay. If no. we, yeah, so that's not in this data set. Yeah, I guess that's one of the, the downfalls is that there are... Um, certain sensory attributes that we don't have the capability to um, quantify yet. But that's always a topic of discussion for the research, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Well, let's hear about the results. Nate's all you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I was going to say we should probably uh, define BP, ANI at some point just for context. No time like the present. <laughs> I'm good on that one. Oh, what is B? Uh, it's B it's BPA, which yeah, everyone's BPA pretty pretty know. aware of. I think um, anyone who drinks out of Nalgene's is is pretty aware of BPAs, and you know, um, they were definitely a hot topic for a while as far as um, you know potential health risks and stuff like that. But um, it right. looks like the FDA has definitely cleared BPA and I for <laughs> for beer drinking purposes, etc. Yeah, and I guess um, BPA and I stands for BPA non-intent. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It's not BPA free. So, and the difference in the definition is non-intent means that it, uh, you know, the coating supplier when they are gathering their raw ingredients and um, mixing it all up that they're doing their due diligence um, at, uh, from what they are receiving from even their upstream suppliers. Um, and it's saying that their suppliers told them what they have given to the coating supplier does not include BPA and I. So it's that non-intent portion of it. Um, I think there are probably instances where if, you know, a very highly sensitive lab was able to do analysis, like there probably could be the possibility to find like trace levels, but the non-intent language, it's very like legalese, if you will, um, where it's like there was no intention of adding a, a, an ingredient that contained BPA 
directly, you know? And so, and then it kind of goes through the whole process where it's like the raw material supplier who supplies the coating supplier has, you know, signed a legal document saying there is no BPA containing uh, ingredients. And the coating supplier then tells the can manufacturer, yes, there's no BPA. Um, there's no intent of including a BPA uh, containing ingredient. And then it kind of goes all the way through. So like we also have no intent of having uh, cans that are contributing BPA, but we're all kind of relying on the supplier upstream from us to also, you know, corroborate that if you will. Makes sense. Sounds a little sketchy, but makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. It sounds sketchy. <laughs> this is the world that we live in. <laughs> yep. Everyone's just trying to cover their ass. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, can, All right. I can go into the results yeah. now if you'd like. Yeah, please do. Yeah. <laughs> Stop Rick talking about doom and gloom, <laughs> can liners. I know. I, and I feel like our legal team, if they like, if they oh, had no. the script of what I said, they'd be like, Brooke, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to, you know, be on a podcast and now we're both getting canned. <laughs> Pun intended. Um, all right. Uh, so going into the results, um, kind of the comparison between uh, sensory and analytical was what I was most uh, interested in uh, with this study. We did what we would call a, um, a shelf life study here at New Belgium. So uh, on the fresh cans between the Gen 1 and Gen 2, there really wasn't um, much sig significant uh, difference in mercing. Whereas um, one month or two months into their shelf life, that's when we saw the more significant uh, drop off. Um, so what's fresh? Is that like, you know, day one or what is that? Yeah, fresh is typically, if they package it that morning, we'll get to it at 10 a.m. If they package it after 10 a.m., we'll get to it the next day. And okay. then, of course, we have um, a little um, overflow on the weekends. But yeah, fresh is, I'd say, you know, as as fresh as like one hour and as old as maybe two days. Okay. Um, and then as far as the sensory 2AFC that uh, Brooke mentioned, uh, basically you're, you're handed two samples and you're asked, okay, which one has more mercine? Which one is more tropical? Which one's more citrus, uh, et cetera? And so the Gen 1 versus uh, Gen 2 liner um, correlated both the mercine uh, and papery uh, aspect of that beer. So uh, the Gen 1 liner showed uh, significantly less mercine, both on panel and with the one-month and two-month uh, shelf life study uh, cans. And the Gen 1 liner also showed a higher papery attribute, which, uh, as Brooke said, we don't have the capability to measure yet. Um, but it is a sensory perception, and it is uh, typically a, a staling compound. It's something you don't want in your beer. And most of the time with the, um, I guess, uh, with the loss of mercine, um, you're able to pick up a lot more uh, potential staling compounds as well. Were the, um, were the papery sensory results surprising? And do you think that means myrcene was masking papery notes when present, or was there actually more oxidation occurring in the Gen 1 can? Um, based on further discussions we've had uh, since 
this uh, paper came out, uh, it is the theory that the terpenes themselves were compromising the liner, which was causing um, actual oxidation with the inside of the can itself. Interesting. Okay, so basically the 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 liner was using up its activity on the terpenes instead of on the oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, and I I guess something that I didn't mention before, um, because you know we started out talking about twelve ounce versus nineteen point two ounce, um, and that ended up being kind of indirectly related in a way where when we realized that they were coming from different can manufacturing site, it just it happened that one can manufacturing site you know, this one was in Mexico at the time. And so that uh, site was using a Gen 1 liner, which New Belgium had as an approved liner. You know, we had choose from these, it has to be BPA and I essentially was what our criteria was. And so from the facility in Mexico, we were getting a Gen 1 liner um, because that's what that facility was supplied with. And then it just so happened that the facility that makes our 12 ounce um, cans was getting supplied with a uh, Gen 2 liner. So it wasn't even necessarily the difference between the 12 ounce. It wasn't a 19.2 versus 12 ounce difference. It was a difference of what coatings those two separate plants were being supplied for, were being supplied with. And actually since then, the facility in Mexico had switched to a Gen 2 liner. months after uh, the original kind of problem was identified. And since uh, when those two facilities were using the same liner, um, when we saw that line up again, then these results were, they, uh, it wasn't a 12 ounce versus 19.2 ounce problem anymore. You know, once they were using the same coatings, whether it was a 12 or a 19.2, our results started to line up again, you know? It must be nice to see that. Definitely. So what were your next steps? I assume you switched completely from Gen 1 to Gen 2. And is that what other brewers listening to this episode should do? Oh, man. This is... I can tell you what we did, and this has changed since we even gave this presentation over the summer. So um, the supply chain dynamic has changed. So... Um, when we did this study, um, obviously what came out of this study was New Belgium made a strong recommendation that like migrating as much of our can production to Gen 2 coatings was our was our preference. You know, um, in 2020 and 2021, everyone remembers the can allocation. So like we weren't really in a position to be like, we won't accept cans with Gen 1 liners. Like that wasn't the state of the industry, you know? And so we would say like when it's possible to move to a Gen 2 coating, like that is definitely our preference, you know? Um, And so, and that was the direction that we were able to go and it didn't happen overnight. It took time, Um, but we did get to a point where if not all, most of our uh, cans coming from the manufacturer had a Gen 2 coating. That being said, the plant that the Gen 2 coating is produced out of um, in Texas, it's a Sherwin-Williams plant, had a major uh, explosion event. And yeah, I remember hearing about that. I believe they're still closed. You know, it's like this huge, huge investigation. Um, I, don't, I don't even know if they're making Gen 2 liners at this or coating 
to even go into cans at this point, but that, that shifts every, this whole conversation, you know, I think that when we saw that news report, um, that there was the realization that even though we prefer the Gen 2 coding, we may start to see Gen 1 uh, coded, coded cans, you know, in the near future. And even within the New Belgium Bells um, network, we have seen a shift of some of our production going back to Gen 1 liners because that's what's available, you know. Um, and so, like, in this very, you know, temperamental market that we all live in, um, you can say that you have a preference um, and do whatever you can to move in that direction. Uh, but a lot of a lot of this had to do with like at least knowing where the differences in results was coming from to know that it was re related to the coding. You know that's powerful in and of itself. Then, if you're a brewery that maybe there is the ability to get access to Gen One and Gen Two codings um, to cover like maybe you can't cover 100% of your um, production with Gen Two codings, but maybe you can be really selective in which one of your brands. Um, should go into your Gen 2 coatings, you know? If yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that. Like, I mean, because presumably, you know, if you're packaging, you know, a uh, low hopped amber ale or something mm -hmm. that you, maybe you don't care so much about uh, that being in a Gen 2, right? Right. Yeah. I, like I said, this difference was noticed in Voodoo Ranger Imperial. It wasn't noticed in Fat Tire. So, yes. And, and I realized that not that a lot of breweries do not have the luxury of one even knowing. I mean, like they can certainly ask, uh, you know, if you're buying your cans from a broker, to me, it is a very acceptable question to be able to ask them what the liner is inside of it. But I guess I'm not totally plugged into what information smaller breweries actually do have access to. But I guess my hope is that in having this presentation and the, the information here is that folks even know that that's a question that they can and should be asking about, you know? And additionally, like when all of this is going down and we're in the pandemic and there's can allocations and people start getting um, cans from overseas, you know, their BPA and I is a big deal in the U S and it isn't necessarily a big deal in other countries. So, um, if you're getting imported cans, it should be a question at the top of your list of whether it is BPA and I, you know, because there's even regulations within the U.S. that you can't sell cans that have BPA in them to like California, you know. So like these are questions that people need to be asking, you know, their suppliers were like responsible, you know. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about sort of the um the, the code that would tell you, you know, what the liner was, can you figure out the generation from the code as well? Or do you need to, um, does that take more investigation? Yeah. So it's not on the can itself. I know that, okay. um, at the point at the moment when we were doing this, like deep dive into it, it was on the palette tag at that point. But I think even since then, cause there's lots of hot topics when it comes to, um, packaging materials and, PFAS is something that's a big conversation topic right now. And so now I believe that the real estate that was taken up with whether or not um, on the pallet tag, it used to say like it would indicate whether it was Gen 1 or Gen 2. And I think that real estate has been taken 
up with whether it's PFAS free essentially. So, and I didn't even notice that until like a few months ago when someone asked and I was like, I swear to God, this, you know, this used to tell us whether we had a gen one or a gen two coding, but now that language is gone. And so, yeah, there's just changes that happen at manufacturers that, you know, you don't see unless you are watching it super closely or know that it, someone gives tips you off that like, even the traceability on a pallet tag may change, you know? Okay. Um, I think it's probably worth you mentioning the topic of, you know, protecting the can from the liquid versus the liquid from the can. So I think in most, I think in most instances where a brewery is uh, determining what liner is appropriate for the container that it's going into, um, maybe not in most, but there's usually a submission of the liquid to the manufacturer to make sure that, you know, they can appropriately match what coating is going to be compatible with the liquid that's going in the can. Um, and so in the instance of what we were talking about here, it's like our can manufacturer had given us the indication that, you know, any of these three can liners are, they will protect the can from the liquid. So we won't have instances where we're having leakers or, you know, corrosion, which I guess now that I say that, Nate, like <laughs> the whole theory that the terpenes were breaking down the coating, like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know um, where it goes from there. You know, it, it, it could potentially um, damage the can later down the road. Yeah. And I guess that's like later phases. We haven't done that research, but it may be worthwhile. But I guess I, I'm guessing those those can manufacturers when they're trying to match you your product to to their products, they're probably not asking questions about terpenes. They're probably mm -hmm. asking questions about pH and things like that, right? Yes, they are looking for cr like critical, you know, container failure events of leakage or you know things like that that happen. Um, so yes, quite the whole conversation of protecting the can from the liquid versus protecting the liquid from the can. You know, if your can manufacturer says that a Gen 1 liner, Gen 2 liner isn't compatible with your product because it has, you know, it has salt in it or it has, you know, a low pH, um, then, you know, that takes precedence over like making sure that all your mercine aromas are captured because if your can is leaking, it doesn't even matter how many, like what your mercine levels are, you know? So it's important to take both of those things into consideration to make sure that the can is protected and then do what you can to protect the liquid in it. Um, I don't know. In my opinion, it's kind of secondary. You know, the, the can has to be able to hold up for then the liquid to hold up. We, Like I said, we're not experts necessarily on can coatings. When we gave this presentation at the ASBC annual meeting, um, there was someone from Ball, Scott Berndecki, who gave a presentation immediately after about, you know, a lot more about the chemistry of can liners. Um, and he also talked about that protecting the liquid from the can and vice versa. Um, and so there's, there is, um, there are people who have more of that content about why? Why did? Because we didn't really answer that question. Why did? Was there a difference between a Gen One and a Gen Two liner? In our study, all we did was identify that there was a difference between the Gen One and the Gen Two liner. And so, um, Ball has their different, you know, uh, research that kind of may give more 
context behind the why aspect of it, um, but that wasn't really something that we dove super deeply into. Yeah, just kind of going off uh, that, um, I think it would be super interesting to kind of follow up with the the CanLine manufacturer and the Can manufacturer, and you know if they have instrumentation that they can use to kind of uh, quantify um, their liner throughout a shelf life study. Um, that's something that I would be interested in is, you know, what functionally is happening uh, with these terpenes in, you know, this liner versus that liner. Um, also, I, I wanted to um, kind of bring up, um, if you're a smaller brewery that doesn't necessarily have all of these um, checks and balances in place, um, you really just need to lean on your sensory program. Um do a shelf life study if you can, um, and um, yeah, validate your panelists on attributes that are important to consumers. Yeah, I guess one last thing, if that's all right, just um, Nate and I are definitely like, we're the messengers, if you will, you know, it's like telling the story about what happened and sharing what our teams did, but this was like a very big collaborative effort between, you know, uh, the analytical lab, sensory, sensory panelists, um, I don't know that micro necessarily played into it, but you know, there's a lot of people involved too. Uh, they never do anything anyway. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was both a, a cross department and a, a cross uh, facilities um, investigation. So I think it was um, super beneficial that we could uh, lean on our, our counterparts uh, in Fort Collins as well as Asheville. That was Brooke Gushen and Nate Burns here on the Master Brewers Podcast. As always, check the show notes for links. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Precision Fermentation, and the Lupulin Exchange. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Keep on keeping, keep on keeping, keep on keeping.